0: The following episode of the 9pm edict is number 4, in a series of specials, and basically you are to blame, it contains strong language, and disturbing sexual imagery, robot sex is much less disturbing, please provide me with your email address, and the contact detail for your next of kin.
1: Sunday the 20th of September 2015 The air is filled with a swirl of rose petals and gold dust And the nation's rivers and streams run with champagne
2: Malcolm Turnbull has emerged saying he's full of optimism As he prepares to be sworn in as the country's
1: 29th Prime Minister Broadcaster Alan Jones rejects the process For all that happening for one of his own choosing. The democracy of talkback radio. But this talkback caller knows the real reason we should be worried about Turnbull. He was the guy who banned incandescent light bulbs. Oh, really? No, don't worry about that. This is the 9pm. Malcolm. 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 Oh, Malcolm. Oh, Malcolm. Oh, Malcolm. 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 Oh, oh, Malcolm. oh, Malcolm. Oh, Malcolm. Oh, Malcolm. Oh, Malcolm. Oh, Malcolm. Um. Oh, Malcolm. Oh, oh, this is the 9pm Malcolm-gasm. Would you believe it's 40 years ago this week that that album was released? Pink Floyd's Wish You Were Here. And if you plan on listening to it, I'd forget about listening to me. Go and start listening to that bloody Floyd album now because it'll take you another 40 years to get to the end of the fucking thing. Well, boys and girls, um, a lot has happened since the last time we spoke, we've got a, a new Prime Minister. I've got a, a bottle of Riesling, which is quite nice. And uh, I'm still not sure how I want to treat this whole change of Prime Minister thing. I mean, obviously it's very important because I seem to have spent the last two years complaining about Crusader Rabbit. But I mean, he's gone now. Mission accomplished. And although he uh, was arguably the worst prime minister in Australian history, or at least within living memory, and, you know, don't just take my word for that, that was pretty much what the Saturday paper said in its editorial, uh, like, who cares anymore? It, it really does feel like the bad dream is over, like we're just getting on with the next thing. Oh, good, that's over. I, I, and on a personal level... I actually don't have any desire to kick him while he's down. I mean, the man was a cunt, obviously. But Abbott was just not up to the job. I mean, here is a man who really, really wanted to be Prime Minister. I mean, so much so that he would say pretty much anything to anyone to make it happen. And then once he got it, he was like, You know, the dog chasing the car. Okay, woof, woof, off you go, chase the car. But what actually happens when you sink your teeth into that ton of metal? And the same really happened with Abbott. He was so busy fighting and brawling to become Prime Minister that when he got there, I mean, he really didn't know what he was going to do except smash all the stuff that the previous lot had done and he'd stopped the boats and ditched the bitch and axed the tax and done countless other things which which took him, you know, three words each to say. But then it was the debt and deficit emergency, except two years into the Abbott government, <laughs> like the debt's twice what it was and suddenly it's not an emergency anymore. Yeah, look... at. A million, a billion words are going to be written about the demise of Tony Abbott's government. They have been already. And if you are really the kind of person who absorbs yourself in uh, this kind of politics, well, I'm guessing you've already saturated your brain with this stuff. So I don't need to, to add too much. What I will add uh, comes in two parts. First... I just want to reflect on how the cranky old Manosphere started to react to the terrible news that their little crusader rabbit had got the chop. And secondly, Malcolm Turnbull is the first Prime Minister of Australia with whom I've had personal personal relations. No, Not like, oh God, not like that. I've had a number of conversations with Malcolm Turnbull over the last uh, four years or so, and uh, I'd like to revisit them. But first, to the morning after the rabbit got the chop and leading the pack of the angry old white men was Alan Jones.
3: Two blokes were walking their dogs in a cemetery and one said to the other, morning. The other said, no, 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 just a bit of excess." (laughs) Just a bit of exercise. (laughs) I think that's it. It's a cemetery. You understand people are dead, are you, in mourning. I think that's brilliant, don't
1: you? No, Alan, I don't think that's brilliant whatsoever. But if you feel the need to have to explain your dad-level jokes to your own audience, you must really hold them in contempt as being completely and utterly stupid, right? I mean, are they that stupid? Well, I don't know. Let's have a listen. I'm
2: not a, 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 a liberal party supporter by any stretch, but um, I'd say the prospect of two years in and seeing Bill Shorten get into government is is pretty frightening.
3: I'm absolutely sick this morning. I can't stand Malcolm Turnbull. I can't stand his voice. It drives makes me
1: sick. I can't stand his voice. It makes me sick, just like yours, love. Judy Bishop and Malcolm Turnbull are the Bill
3: Shortens of the of the. Liberal Party. They have stabbed an excellent Prime Minister in the back,
2: and I will never forgive them. Look, I've been a member of the Liberal Party since 1986. I rang the branch, uh, Sydney branch, five weeks ago, and I said to them there that Abbott, uh, not Abbott, I'm sorry, Turnbull was uh, disloyal and a dysfunctional force within our party, and I suggested that the man should be either disendorsed Or expelled
3: Hello, look, I'm very, very, very very sick today About what happened last night I have been a liberal voter But I don't know where to go now I'm not voting for Michael Turnbull
1: Did you hear that? Michael Turnbull
3: I'm not voting for Michael Turnbull I don't vote Labour, I don't vote Green. So mm. what shall I do That's now? A, a, good,
1: it's a very good point. Jones kept going off from the callers on these extended rants, and I don't have time to include all of them, but here's just one example. He's never been given credit for the
3: manful attempts he's made to turn all of that around, whether they be carbon taxes, boats, debt. He's done a manful job. He's gone day and night to try and turn the mess around and he's represented Australia magnificently internationally in very, very difficult circumstances. No credit for any of that
1: was given last night. Well, apart from Jones's uh, repetition of the word manful there, which I find quite disturbing given that Alan Jones's main claims to fame are being rub- a rugby coach at private boys' schools and being arrested in a public toilet in London for obscenity. The idea that Abbott wasn't given any credit last night, that is Monday night, by Malcolm Turnbull is kind of
4: bullshit because here's how Turnbull's speech started. I want to say at the outset what a great debt the nation owes, and the party owes, the government owes, to Tony Abbott and of course to his family, Margie, and their daughters. Uh, the, the burden of leadership is a very heavy one. Tony's discharged that, leader of the party, and of course as Prime Minister, over many years now. And the achievements of the government that he has led have been formidable. The the free trade agreements that uh, have been negotiated represent some of the key foundations of our future prosperity, which I'll talk about in a moment. And of course, restoring the security on our borders has been an extraordinarily important step, enabling us, for example, to offer the uh, increased and generous uh, arrangements for Syrian refugees last week. So I want to thank Tony. Uh, very much indeed for that.
1: So, bear in mind as you listen to Alan Jones's callers that they are kept in the dark, whether it's deliberately or through Alan Jones's incompetence or fading memory, who knows? But they live in a fantasy world made up by Jones's mind.
2: Malcolm Turnbull didn't do a very good job as opposition leader. And what bothered me was if he was such a good communicator, why didn't he communicate the government's message Correct. to Tony Abbott?
1: Correct. Correct, correct. Little parrot brain.
2: It all just stinks and I just, I won't be voting coalition ever again. I won't. (laughs) There was one thing we had that the Labor Party didn't and it was loyalty and it's just gone now. Um, And I know plenty of people that have voted Liberal all their life and uh, they're uh, resigning their membership today and that's just a disgrace, complete disgrace, mate. Look, I think it's called politics for a reason.
1: Oh, you've really thought that one through, haven't you?
2: Look, my advice to most people is to start saving your pennies because the recession's coming. He's just gifted it to shorten, I reckon. Mm. Hi, Alan. Yeah. In my opinion, unfortunately, I believe that the government has become a reflection of our society at the moment.
1: A government becoming a reflection of society? Gee, how is that allowed in a democracy?
2: If we're not happy with something, regardless, regardless of the consequence, we just get rid of it. Mm.
1: People have forgotten what
2: Malcolm Turnbull was like when he was the uh, minister in the Howard government. He was the guy who banned incandescent light bulbs. When he was the leader of the opposition, he supported the... Missions training scheme, he did. carbon tax. He did. I'm a 74-year-old truck driver, so basically I'm a quintessential swing voter. There is no way, regardless of what happened last night, and that's a tragedy, I can tell you. That is a damn tragedy. This place got an ego that would match Kevin Rudd, and that's saying something. Mm. But there is no way that I could... Vote Labor, given the circumstances of their front bench. Unfortunately, I haven't heard what's happening to Mr Dutton.
1: That's uh, Peter Dutton, the cabbage for immigration and border protection he's talking about there. Because he's my local rep, and I think he's done a fantastic job. He's a colossal
3: man, good man. Very, very good man. Lucky to have him.
2: Good morning, Alan. I love your show, and bear with me. I know nothing, nothing, nothing at all about politics. (laughs) But I want to... No,
3: no, I want to say... Hey, Paula, there's quite a few people voted in Canberra last night who know nothing about politics.
2: Well, here's what I wanted to say, and I want to say it loud and clear to the Australian people. We did not... We, the people, did not vote for uh, turn I, yes, want a Labour, li- uh, sorry, 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 I didn't say Labour, Liberal, Liberal government.
1: I was pissing myself laughing at that point. The guilt, the guilt she had for saying she'd voted Labour. I want a Liberal
2: government, but I want to say to every... Every Australian out there, we did not vote for Turnbull last night. We do not like spills. I will not recognise Turnbull. Put uh, Abbott back there and we will vote for which one we want. Mm. Now, come on, this is enough. This is enough. I want my money back.
1: Uh, Can someone give this uh, woman her money back? Thank you very much. Look, I could play you more and more of these clips because as the week went on, These people didn't calm down. They just became more and more insane. But that's the joy of Talkback Radio, the democracy of Talkback Radio. i better move on from there because we're kind of quarter of the way through the program already. But I will finish up uh, with Alan Jones by playing you a little clip which really does show you how much he despised despises the Labor Party. He calls them...
3: The assassins and the incendiarists who burnt this economy. Tony Abbott faced manfully up to the issue of trying to turn it around. Those efforts obviously not
1: appreciated. Ellie, hello.
2: Yes, hello. Look, this is just a quick call. Look, I mean, we're all hurting about what happened last night.
1: Yeah, we're all hurting, Ellie. But in my case, it's mostly from having listened to a couple of hours of Alan Jones on Tuesday morning and quite a Bit of other angry old man shit besides. As I said, I don't really want to spend uh, any time talking about uh, Abbott himself, uh, though I will mention that it was a bit of a graceless exit, I thought. It took Abbott's mob around five days to vacate the Prime Minister's office, in part because it seems that from Monday night it was a big, drunken, raucous party through until dawn on Tuesday morning, uh, which kind of explains why Abbott then didn't front the media until lunchtime. But really, what would happen if a corporate CEO was sacked and then told the board he'd need five days to shred the documents before leaving the building. Now, I seem to recall that... You know, when I've seen people sacked from a corporate environment, they're pretty much escorted from the building on the spot. Their belongings are gathered up and handed to them later so that they can't do any damage, can't destroy anything, particularly if there's some suspicion about their performance levels or indeed whether they did their job appropriately, should we say, neutrally. So in my view... Abbott should have been escorted from the building at the end of Monday night's party meeting straight away. Yet there's a photo from the other day showing you know this pallet load of shredded documents being removed from the Prime Minister's office. Now, to me, that's reasonable suspicion of corrupt activity. The Fed- Australian Federal Police should be all over that office by now, shouldn't they? Nothing to hide, nothing to fear and all that shit that you government types keep telling us about, right? Does the Australian Federal Police use truncheons, I know. I'm just asking for a friend. Spread them, Tony. Now, just to be clear, I'm not making a party political point here. Abbott's departure just happens to be the one that I've seen this week and I'm curious about the process. I'm sure that much the same process happens when any other Prime Minister departs. And my point is that this process is utterly wrong. Let's... Look ahead. As I say, I've spoken to Malcolm Turnbull on, I think, about four occasions, and uh, three of them were on the record, on tape. The the fourth was kind of on the record too because it was at a public uh, event, but uh, I'll get to that in a minute. The first occasion was in 2011, four years ago, when the coalition, then in opposition, had just announced its broadband policy in competition with Labor's National Broadband Network. I did uh, quite a long interview with Malcolm Turnbull for the Patch Monday podcast uh, for ZDNet Australia, and uh, there's a link to the whole conversation on the website. But one of the interesting parts is when I suggested that uh, the coalition's uh, less ambitious targets for broadband speed, to, to put it politely, uh, may not have been suitable for for all the applications we might want to do in the future.
2: It is difficult to think of any, or certainly very difficult to think of many, applications that are uh, of interest to residential users that would not be you know, uh, perfectly well serviced by uh, the speeds I've described. So you know, it's hard to know what you would miss out on.
1: Well, I, I I beg to differ on that point, if I may. Well, because can you give me an example? Absolutely. Um, I mean, if you've uh, got people who are going to be working from home, you've got a family of uh, you know a couple of parents, a couple of kids, which is always put up mm. as the the standard kind of family that we we expect mm. to see on the on on the TV. Uh, if you've got uh, say both parents doing some some work from home, they've got live video links set up so that they can. Mm. Uh, be in conversations with their co-workers uh the kids have got home from school they're in video conferences with uh, classmates around the place you might have uh yes,
2: of course is a typical australian family so you're going to have a family of four all of whom are doing interactive video conferencing in separate rooms
1: yeah why not
2: well it's that's that is a um I'm not saying that is... In, of course, it's not impossible. Uh, well, I guess uh, what I'm but, saying
1: is we don't have that today because, of course, we don't have the bandwidth, the facilities to do that today. But if that's the, uh, the future that we're building towards, perhaps not one year, two years, but five years, ten years, um, no, I don't have any trouble seeing that kind of scenario at all. In, in, indeed, there's a... There's well, no
2: doubt people that want to do that will be prepared to pay for it. The question that you've got to ask yourself... And this is you know th- this is the thing that the nbn enthusiasts fail to do the thing you've really got to ask yourself is how much government subsidy do you believe is appropriate to achieve uh, bandwidth that would enable a family of four to be engaged in four simultaneous high definition video conferencing episodes now just to state that if you actually step outside of the uh, realm of NBN enthusiasm. Mm. Uh, if you step out into you know more uh, general section of the public, and you were to state that as a you know the basis on which you are going to spend fifty plus billion dollars, people would think you were mad.
1: Now, bear in mind that conversation was recorded four years ago, and as I record this podcast tonight uh, in the inner west of Sydney, I can still barely get. 6 megabytes per second download speed over what is allegedly a broadband link. So the National Broadband Network is just fabulous, isn't it? And I'll say, as I've said many times before, 20 years ago, Australia had the third fastest internet in the world. Now we're not even in the top 20, the top 30. Are we even in the top 40? Who knows? Everyone else has moved forward. Australia has not. Well, two years after that conversation was recorded, the coalition government came into power, the Rabbit Government, which I've spoken of once or twice before. Malcolm Turnbull was, of course, communications minister. And as the coalition's plan started to roll out for real, I was actually quite pleased to see that Malcolm Turnbull turned up to an event called Kickstart. It's now called Tech Leaders. It's an event every February where a bunch of technology journalists are brought together so a bunch of technology vendors can can chat with them for a couple of days. And Turnbull actually came into the lion's den. He came and spent more than an hour talking to some journalists, some of whom were quite angry. Uh, But at the very end of the conversation...
4: He said of me... It's good to meet some of the um, ferocious bloggers in the flesh. You know, they're uh, sort of uh, younger and handsomer and less grumpy than I thought they might appear. Uh, But uh, just buttering still and up over there. uh, (laughs)
1: Oh, what a suck. But it was a robust encounter, mostly with Nick Ross, who at that stage was with the ABC, uh, who really got stuck into Turnbull, and that was quite heated. Uh, But here's... What led to that comment from Turnbull? Here's the, the conversation we had. Mr. Oh, good, day. good morning. Good morning. Good morning. Um, notwithstanding that uh, NBN Co. is uh, a secret intelligence organisation that i not speak to you, obviously.
4: Well, I didn't, I didn't um, say no, that. No, no, I, I'm
1: mocking you a bit, but... What's to stop you doing this competitive analysis with some spreadsheets now, using whatever numbers can be estimated, provided by friends of the party, uh, crowdsourced from the internet, whatever? Surely... If the difference in, in cost and the benefits, mm. spending less now and all of mm. the present value stuff, which is a very powerful argument, surely if it's that powerful to say quarter the cost, which is the figure you've been citing recently, that would show up even with very dodgy numbers. We'd start to see. That well,
4: that that but, but that, that that but that's the that's the point. I mean, what I don't want to do is um, you know you talk about guesstimates and so forth. I. I'm, uh, you know, I, look... So that's, I, how
1: we, that's how you start doing a
4: business Well, Well, I, I, you've obviously done a lot more business plans and analysis of telcos than I have, but in my, I can tell you, I, I'm being quite serious about this. I, if I put out a set of financials, uh, I want them to be right. And there is, you know, I do not know, we do not know enough... About the NBN's commitments. I mean, if the NBN were to open their books to us, if the NBN were to say, well, you know, we're going to sit down with you and work with you on this, you know, scenario B, if you like, or Plan B, uh, we could come up with some much, uh, much more robust numbers. Uh, there have been look a number of uh, brokers, analysts have made estimates of uh, what the cost would be. We know. That an FTTN-based NBN from you know from ground zero uh, would be in the order of 15 billion dollars. That was the figure that was put on the uh, you know the Telstra um, NBN plan. Um, obviously, some years have passed. Then, labour costs are somewhat higher, but the cost of all of the kit is lower. Uh, uh, so, that's, that's,
1: I guess mm. the point of my question these numbers can be generated to within mm. X percentage points of accuracy, and we know which numbers are well, more critical. Well, I think.
4: Look. Uh, line value. Well, thank you for that encouragement. You know, we'll we'll take that on board. Can I just say this though? The it would be good though if if. In the, you know, the indignation that you often uh, uh, write with, um, you didn't sort of insult the intelligence of your readers by pretending, for example, that, um, you know, denying uh, the reality that fibre-to-the-node is a lot cheaper and a lot faster to deploy than fibre-to-the-premises. You know, there is a, there, there is an air of complete barking unreality about some of the commentary here. I mean, the, the, you know, the argument... I, I can tell you what the... Uh, I'll be quite objective with you. The argument against fibre-to-the-node is that it doesn't deliver the same performance as fibre-to-the-premises. So that's the argument. That's only one I, I, no, that is that is the so argument.
1: If you're doing this now versus X later, it maybe the the benefits to society as a whole will be worth spending now
4: you know sometimes you yeah. just spend the bare minimum no. because of but you see this but what am I talking about, but external the, yeah but this uh, is the benefits. this is this is the problem that you i, I you know I, you, you thought, let's see the no no well you what well you can do some analysis yourself you know i again i just leave you with this point here we are in Australia. It's a wonderful country, uh, best country in the world, but it is not the only country that is actually dealing with this challenge. But we're filthy rich and the and the lack uh, so we're filthy rich so we should just blow money away regardless of its effectiveness. Well, I
1: don't know. Well that's the question. No, no, we're saying that. You know,
4: I just say to you I just say to you the I just say to you that the that the um it is a, I mean, how many journalists are there in Australia writing about uh, the NBN. None of them. And it's not just the tech, so-called tech journalists who, you know, the blog sites and Twitter accounts and so forth. But, you know, the ABC hasn't done it. The News Limited hasn't. News, you know, the News Limited's got thousands of journalists working in uh, the Northern Hemisphere. Uh, and there is this, you know, there is this lack of awareness or lack of interest in in what is actually happening in other markets and lack of interest in the way in which technology Is developing. So, you know, I'd really encourage you on the NBN uh, to just sort of, you know, if you want to be taken seriously, if you want to be influential, you can't just keep on uh, confirming the prejudices of a dwindling audience. What you've got to do is to be prepared to actually provide examples and Experiences. I mean, for example, gentlemen over there mentioned Spain and um, and uh, fibre to the premises. Uh, I actually know why Spain's fibre to the premises rollout is uh, very cost-effective. Has anyone here ever taken the trouble to find that out? No. None of the journalists here have bothered. They just say Spain's doing it, haven't picked up the phone. I have. I'll tell you why. It's quite interesting, actually. In Spain's telephone rollout, there are deployment, there are virtually no street cabinets, no distribution points. Apparently, so I'm told, in Franco's era, they were so worried about the anarchists blowing them up that the (laughs) copper goes from the exchange straight to the premise. And so the ducts are enormous. So in other words, there's no D side, there's only E side. And so the telephone company in Spain has been able to pull fibre through to several million premises at much lower cost than you could in any other market because you've got these jolly big ducts running. And, you know, of course, most people live in apartments and there's density and all of that helps too. But you've got these great uh, ducts there uh, making it so much more cost effective. And, you know, I, that's what I've done as shadow minister. I've actually taken the time to, as best I can, to learn about technologies and go through what other countries are doing. And they're and everybody is different. Yeah. OK. I think I better... I really, I've got, OK, just one quickie, and then I better go to Brisbane.
1: OK, we gave Malcolm his quickie, and then he went off to Brisbane. And... I will just say one thing, actually two things about that conversation. Firstly, uh, I introduced it wrong. Malcolm was still uh, in the opposition at that point. He was shadow communications. Um, But the point I was trying to make was that we kept not seeing the working out of all of these numbers and estimates and claims that doing things a certain way would be better and cheaper and so on in the long term. And my point was, well, just show us the numbers, show us the working out, and that they those numbers don't have to be perfect at first. Publish you know, your best estimates, then with the help of everyone in the community, not just your friends at large accounting firms, you refine those figures. It's what scientists call successive approximation. You know, you you, you uh, gradually get closer and closer to the truth by improving your estimates and You know, you do actually start off making an estimate by sketching out all of the elements and sort of plugging in some some numbers that you first thought of and then constantly improving your numbers, constantly revising the overall spreadsheet and going, hang on, this number here is the critical one, or over here, it doesn't matter if interest rates are 5% or 6%, that doesn't affect the bottom line, or maybe it does, compared to, well, what if the cost of labour changes, and so on. Now, Malcolm Turnbull has said as Prime Minister that his will be a more traditional, collaborative, Cabinet-style government. This will be a bit of a test, given that so far it's all been, hey, we'll show you the 16-page report, but the underlying spreadsheets are still a secret and we can't test the reliability of the numbers. Okay, so that conversation was uh, two and a half years ago. The... Third conversation was actually during the election campaign two years ago, but it was not really a political event. It was uh, the launch of Malcolm Turnbull's new website at malcolmturnbull.com.au. Had a few beers, really didn't talk to Malcolm so much then. The third occasion was in February of this year, When Turnbull launched NICTA's TechFest, NICTA is National ICT Australia, it's uh, an incubator for uh, technology and so on, and Malcolm Turnbull launched it as communications minister. He does have a personal interest in this stuff. And in an episode of this podcast called Malcolm and the Knutes, I... Encountered him. Um, innovation
4: insurgency. What, yeah. what are we missing to achieve that? What well I think it's I, I think it in large part it's attitudinal. I, I, I really uh, I, I, I I think a lot of it is attitudinal. We have got you've got to you've got everybody in to look. We let me I mean, I'll just just try and just try to express it this way. We have to recognise the world in which we live is changing rapidly. You know the velocity of change is probably never been greater, uh, and so you have to have an attitude whether you're running a business or a government or a department or a newspaper or a website, which is agile. I know agile is a slummed-over word, used word, but you know what I mean. You've got to be. You can't be like um, uh, King Canute trying to turn the surf, the waves back, the tide back. You've got to be like the great surfer who says, yep, it's a very turbulent sea out there and I can use, I can ride those waves. So in other words, make volatility your friend, embrace it and recognise that you've got to have that ability to move. It's, it is, um, you know, I, I, I think it's, uh, you know, that's one of the reasons, you know, sometimes people um, will, well, you know, you look at the debate about NBN, we really must go, but uh, the, I mean, people say, Labor had a fiber to the premises ideology, you have a fiber to the node ideology. I don't have any ideology. I have no ideology about telecommunications other than delivering the service people need as quickly as possible and as cheaply as possible. And we'll use whatever technology is the right one in the right place at the right time. In other words, don't lock yourself in to any preconceived ideas. Just be, just keep on making decisions that are fact-based, that are objective, that are business-like and be ready to change gears as the circumstances require. You know, it is not a... uh, We are in a very, very dynamic environment. I find it extraordinarily exciting. It energises me. Dynamism, change, innovation gives me a very big charge. Some people are threatened by it, I I promise you. I get excited by. Well, sure that on that note, I should go. I was say, people yeah.
1: holding back the tide, who are the Canutes holding us back?
4: <laughs> well, I'll leave that to you, still, Garian You can. Know that <laughs> <that>. <laughs> I'm still miffed.
1: I think Malcolm knows who the Canutes are that are holding us back. I think he's got a list. I think he could easily name three or five or possibly ten Canutes that he personally knows that are holding us back as a nation. And back here on the 20th of September, 2015, I think we just found out who those knoots were. He did have a list. We have a new cabinet. Turnbull is still quite genuinely talking about his interest in and excitement by the rapidly changing world of the future that is with us today. It'll be interesting to see how all this plays out. Two things before I finish talking about Malcolm Turnbull, our new Prime Minister. One, there seems to be a species of comedy, or should I say quote comedy unquote, based around the premise, ha 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 Malcolm Turnbull has a lot of money. Yeah, he does. Well done. And two... There have been people whinging that Turnbull talks to people as if they're idiots. Well, most of you are idiots. Suck it up. Hello, I'm Stilgarian. Welcome to the Edict. Couple of quick housekeeping things before I continue on. One. The public house forum last time seemed to work fairly well, and I've had indications that you would like me to do more of them. I am investigating this possibility. No dates yet, but uh, yes, I'm very much investigating the possibility, so stay tuned for that. And two, uh, yes, I'm meant to be doing all of your casual verbalings, tongue lashings, and two minutes hate. There's a great list of them to do. And I've got ideas forming in my head, um, but I'm already 36 minutes into this podcast as of now, and uh, I really need to get this one finished. So what I'll do, I'll wrap this podcast up today with uh, a a special two minutes hate, which is a four minutes hate, but I'll come back to all the rest over the coming episodes, so that'll give you something to, to listen to, and I think it'll be a better balance. You won't just have a whole lot of these strange, disjointed rants. You'll you'll have a kind of more thematic rant to the whole thing. I hope I hope that sort of thing works for you. I should also mention as well that uh, no no no, I'll tell you about that another time. <laughs> And now here's Nicholas Fryer with The Arch Window.
0: One of the joys of spring anywhere is the opportunity to spend more time outdoors eating. Eating is one of the two great carnal pleasures, and it's the only one that one is permitted to do in groups in public. There are social risks, of course. In these relaxed times, nobody much minds what consenting adults consume in the privacy of their own home. Eat in public, however, and one may still face disapproval. There are people who feel entitled to criticise what one eats on the basis of its meat content, its fat content, its pesticide levels, or its perceived pretension. Why anyone should feel it necessary to poke fun at, say, quinoa, just because it tastes like polystyrene pellets boiled in dishwashing liquid, is beyond me. A particular joy of public gustation in Adelaide is the relatively recent increase in the number of good Greek restaurants. If there's a better way to spend the middle of a warm Sunday than dappling under the vines, lazily absorbing Phasolada and Keftadakia, then news of it hasn't reached these parts. I've got a friend, Nick Marinos, who's the creative impetus behind one such eatery. His establishment, a bright, funky little joint in McLaren Vale, puckishly named, insert euphemism here, is famous for its seafood... And the speciality of the house is his octopus, marinated and then merely caressed in a cleansing flame. It's as delicate as self-confidence, and as tender as a father's tears. To eat it is to feel again the exhilaration of first love, with the added bonus of the wisdom not to fuck it up this time round. Nick calls the dish after his grandfather, who, if his tales are to be believed, was a master chef when he wasn't single-handedly throwing the occupying Germans off his beloved Crete during the Second World War. The secret of Octopodi Nicolou is kept closely by Nick. Many have tried to winkle the recipe from him. All have failed. Some things are known, of course. There is oregano there suggestion of fennel, and Nick will tell you that the key is not to overdo the lemon. Just a smear, just a smear, he always says. But how it's all brought together, only Nick knows. The result, however, consumed in the little whitewashed courtyard at the back of the restaurant, is an experience to carry you through the rest of your week. As one noted food critic said in a recent column, one knows that the octopus died happy. On a warm Sunday, recently at the Euphemism, I'd had perhaps two too many glasses of Nick's dangerous circuitia, and I fell asleep in the shadiest corner of the courtyard, my chin on my chest, and my hat pulled down over my brow. I must have dozed for a good couple of hours, because when I wiped my eyes and my chin and looked about, evening had started to set in, and I was alone in the now cool and dim courtyard. My dark-adjusted eyes could see clearly through the servery hatch into the kitchen, where I beheld a thrilling sight. In the centre of the kitchen floor was a substantial tub, the diameter of a child's wading pool, but a good metre or more high. I could see that it was about two-thirds full of whole octopuses. and I also saw, with a start, that Nick was adding handfuls of fresh herbs. "'At last,' I thought, "'the secret will be mine.' "'Making sure that I was concealed in shadow "'and could not be seen from inside, "'I grabbed a napkin "'and started taking notes. "'More and more ingredients were added to my list "'until at last Nick poured in "'a gallon or so of olive oil "'and stepped back, "'apparently satisfied. "'All that remained, it seemed, "'was to mix the ingredients thoroughly. "'Nick started to roll up his sleeves, "'but then he paused. "'He was wearing his Sunday best,' "'having been greeting and hugging guests since late that morning. "'Clearly unwilling to grease up his decent clothes, "'he quickly slipped out of his outer layer, "'and then, with a shrug, everything else, "'until he stood, an only slightly rounded Adonis, "'or an Olympian dressed only in his dignity. "'He paused only for a moment before bending to plunge his arms into the pot, "'and it was with quite a whimsical grace and elegance "'that one foot slipped on a patch of spilled oil.' a greased arm, failed to provide the needed support, and with an ah uh of surprise, Nick slithered right into the tub. My first impulse was to rush to his aid, but I was halted by the absurdity of my situation. To rush in now would be to reveal that I had observed the whole process, and to the shame of peeping on a naked neighbour would be the added humiliation at the discovery that my motivation in doing so was not even honest lust but mere attempted theft of intellectual property. I was contemptible, and I couldn't face being revealed as such. So it was with enormous relief that I observed that Nick was not in fact in any danger. On the contrary, he'd surfaced easily, and was lying, submerged but for his face, in the octopodal melange. That face was staring up at the ceiling, and as his arms gently moved through the fragrant cephalopods, At the lazy speed required to support his weight in such a viscous medium, I noticed that his expression was one of unadulterated joy. Pure happiness is an intensely personal thing. One sees it in children who haven't yet grown the shell of falsehood and misdirection that adults wear. To see ecstasy in another adult is something usually only granted to lovers. But there, released from decorum and gravity, insinuated in oily sensuality, his every nerve-ending and bodily crevice in intimate contact with tentacular tactility, Nick was no longer of this world, but temporarily transported to another plane of existence, without worry and without sorrow. He was absolutely and completely happy, and seeing him so utterly released from all worldly care, so truly given over to joy... My eyes filled and tears ran down my face. Still ashamed, but deeply moved, I tiptoed from my hiding place, noiselessly worked the latch on the gate at the rear of the courtyard and slipped away to my car. On the way, I threw my napkin full of notes into the first bin that i passed. I'd already been given a very great gift that day, and it would have been to tweak the nose of fate persist in trying to steal another. Four Minutes Hate for an anonymous sponsor and Trent Yarwood.
1: People who had contributed $100 or more to the 9pm urgent hardware refresh were appointed as media freedom thought leaders because they could ask for, demand a two minutes hate. That is, they would receive the benefit of my wisdom on a subject of their choice for two minutes. Well, as you've just heard, this is a four minutes hate. There is a conspiracy. First, someone who chose to remain anonymous asked me to espouse my love of Soapy and his glorious wisdom for two minutes. Soapy, of course, being the Attorney General of Australia. And then Trent Yarwood contributed money as well and asked for two further minutes on the gloriousness of Soapy, the ankle QCAG. Well, I have a confession to make. Over the past two years, I have ridiculed and insulted Australia's Attorney General, Senator George Brandis QC. I've called him Soapy the Ankle, which is clearly inappropriate. I mean, Soapy is the nickname that he's been given ever since his university days, apparently, because of his um, pompous nature. It names him after the character Soapy Sam in Rumpole of the Bailey, who was in turn named after Soapy Sam Samuel Wilberforce. Look up your history. I mean, I added ankle to that because, well, that's Australian slang, isn't it? As uh, regular listeners will know, an ankle is three feet lower than a cunt. Now, in my columns for ZDNet, even calling someone an ankle is considered inappropriate, and I have therefore referred to him sarcastically, on first reference at least, as Australia's favourite Attorney General, the Honourable Senator George Brandis QC. And only the other day I tweeted that I was imagining Senator Brandis as a pilot dirigible drifting out of control over the Brindabella Rangers and expressing my fond hope that he would soon catch fire and crash a kind of Hindenburg of laws the image i had in my mind was much like sky whale the much loved hot air balloon except with less grace and dignity well uh, here's the confession i love senator george brandis no i am in love with senator george brandis that perfectly spherical face the smooth Bland whiteness of his skin, punctuated only by the broad reddened skull that he gets when he's been out in the sun too long. I know that uh, Brandis, may I call you George? Yes, I know that George tries not to do that too often. Clearly he knows the erotic effect it'll have on me. The top of his head ends up looking like the planes of Mars. And if you are Mars, George Brandis... Then I am your Venus. You've got it. Yeah, George, you've got it. I'm your Venus. I'm your fire at your desire. Well, I'm your Venus. I'm your fire at your desire. Your weapons are your crystal eyes, making every boy mad. Black as the dark night you are, at least in your heart (laughs) and in my imagination. You've got what no one else has. (laughs) What, George? I love you, you enormous great pudding of a man. I want to feel your squidgy, pallid flesh next to mine as I drift off to sleep. I want to explore those moist, classic, liberal crevices to their very depths, unfold those folds, scrape out any moulds or other growths or secretions that have accumulated there between sleeps and taste them, smell them, make them mine. I want to imprint their every odour upon my consciousness so that in my mind, and only my mind, George, there's just a single unified thought combining. The slick touch and taste of your bodily secretions, George. My own rapidly engorging tumescence and your amendments to the Telecommunications Interception and Access Act 1979. You've got it. Yeah, George, you've got it. I'm your Venus. I'm your fire at your desire. I'm your Venus. I'm your fire at your desire. Your weapons are your crystal making every boy mad, black as the night you were. Got what? No one else has. Why? <laughs> you got it, George. You've got me any time and any way you want, George. You said from the start that your time as Attorney General would be a focus of law and order. Well, I need to be brought into order, George. I need to be tamed. You've heard me on these podcasts, George. You know how I need to be controlled by you, by you as Attorney General, by you in your wig, in your horsehair wig. I want to feel your wig, George. It is horsehair, isn't it? I mean, I want it to be horsehair, George. It had better be horsehair, George, because I know that's not the only horse like thing I want to think of about you, George. Soapy, can I call you soapy? Soapy like a horse, strong and dominating. Make me respect your views on jurisprudence, soapy. Give me the benefit of your rough justice. <music> That's exhausting. That's all the edict for now. There's links to things on the website. You can leave a comment there. Uh, There's instructions on how to leave an audio comment. Uh, Further further casual verbalings and tongue lashings and two minutes hate will continue to appear over the coming weeks uh, when I get the energy back. I'm not quite sure exactly when the next episode of the 9pm Edict will appear because that really is quite exhausting. But until then, I'm still Gary and have a great life.
0: The 9pm Edict is a Skank Media production. Sorry.